We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today, and we're going to be going through verses 3 through 7. So um, as you're turning to that, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that uh, the title for this sermon is very similar to last week. So last week, Joe preached a sermon. He called it Living in Love. And this week I'm calling the sermon Living in Love by Abandoning Evil. And I chose that because I want you guys to realize that this section of Scripture depends on the one before it. You see, the Bible often, uh, often one of the mistakes we make when we read the Bible, especially the letters, is there's so much in the beginning about all that God has done for us and all how God cares and loves for us and is full of grace for us. And then we get to the last part of the letter, which is all about, okay, now how do you live? And we kind of forget the first part. See, the first part is all about what God has done and is doing in you. And then we get to the, okay, how do we live part? And we think, okay, now I got to buckle up and do this thing, right? All on my own efforts. And that, that's not what the teaching of scripture is. So I wanted to remind you of that by, by titling it this way. But if you're in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to invite you to stand as I read our scripture for today. So Ephesians 5 verses 3 through 7 says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Father, I pray uh, that you would help us to have ears to hear what you're saying in your word today, that we would take this, this warning that you give us in Scripture and we would take it to heart and that, that we would examine our own lives and any element of evil of, of the old life that is left in us, that we would bring it to you in repentance and depend on you to to sanctify us and remove it from our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So as we are looking at the beginning of this section of Scripture, I do want to remind you very briefly of what we just talked about. So the very beginning of chapter 5 is talking about uh, how we are to be imitators of God. And it goes further. It says, so walk in love. In other words, all of the beginning of Ephesians is all about how God the Father loves us dearly. And Paul labors over this point for verse upon verse, chapter upon chapter, and is starting to reach kind of its climax here. And the, and the point is this, you are so deeply loved by God, and that should make you secure in that love. Therefore, now that you are loved, walk in love yourself an imitation of our Father. And he goes in more detail. He says, just as Christ Jesus loved us. In other words, this self-sacrificing love is what we're called to in last week's sermon. And so then, in this week's sermon, what, what he's doing, while last week showed what we're called to do, kind of filling out what that looks like, 
This week helps us understand it by telling us what is not walking in love. Last week was what is walking in love. This week is what is not walking in love. It's kind of like a negative of a photograph. It tells us what walking in love means by explaining what it does not mean. And the reason it does that, as we'll see as we continue on, is because human beings are so, fallen human beings, I should say, are so easily deceived in their sin. We find all sorts of reasons why our sin and our evil is, is in our minds, good and acceptable, and it's okay. And, and what this section of Scripture is telling us is that it is not, that it is not loving, that it is the opposite of love. And it, it breaks down into a couple of parts. And, and one is, by, it talks about the evil that we do in our lifestyle. So let me just read with you verse 3 again. But sexual immorality and all impurity are covetousness, must not even be named among you. In other words, it's saying that these ways of living must be so separate separate from us as Christians within the church that these things shouldn't even be named among us. All right, that's not just saying if we see it, we shouldn't talk about it, we should keep it secret. Not at all. What it's saying is that our way of life should be so separate that these things can't even be named among us. Now, what are these things? Well, all of these things tie in together, but they're each drawing out a, a different and unique thing as well. So let's look at that first one. But sexual immorality. In other words, it's saying that the followers of Christ must not live in sexual immorality. We must separate ourselves from that. Now, it's really easy to kind of point out our culture and say, yeah, we must not imitate our culture in this way. But remember, this is talking to Christians, and our standard is so much higher. If we want to know what they mean by sexual immorality, we just need to be reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When he asked, when they asked him about uh, sexual immorality, he said that, he said this, he said that even the person who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the standard that we are called to in scripture. Now here's the thing, we need to get this right. Like I've already alluded to, our culture doesn't understand this about us. Doesn't understand why God cares so much about this this uh topic. Um actually there's there's one book uh, I read which has quite a uh provocative title. Uh, it says, "Why does God care who I sleep with?" right? And it, it's kind of a humorous title, but at the same time, that's the question that most people ask. They don't understand that. Why does God care so much? Because our culture, and by the way, I say our culture, this is not actually unique to our culture. This is all people since the fall till now. They do two things. They both have a higher view of sex than is, is taught in Scripture and a lower view. And what I mean by this is the lower view, they, they say, why? why does it really matter? It's just something that you have for pleasure, right? Why, why does it really matter all that much, while at the same time saying that any restrictions put on this area of our life is not just a restriction on our actions, but on our very identity. In fact, people define themselves by their sexual preferences, their proclivities, right? This is who they are, their very identity. And so you have this interesting split where people both view um, this area of their life as both all meaningful that this is who their identity is and also as 
unimportant at all because why? Why does it matter? It's just a moment of pleasure. Why are you so concerned about this? But the teaching of Scripture is very different. The teaching of Scripture and why God cares about this is because this is a gift from God. And it's meant to be between a husband and a wife so that they can better enjoy each other and be closer to each other. And so why does God put restrictions on this? It's because his gifts, when they've been corrupted by sin, as good as they are, can also be just as destructive when they become more than just a gift, but the very thing that we worship and base our identity on. That's why God cares. And so as followers of God, these things shouldn't even be named among us, right? And so then it goes on, it says, and all impurity. Now, most of us, when we read that, what we hear are two synonyms, right? We're like, oh, it's saying the same thing twice. Um, and there's definitely a lot of overlap here. But impurity is actually drawing something else out more. Actually, impurity in the Bible is more than just sexual sins. Impurity is all sins, but it's describing specifically kind of the corrupting and, and uh, contagious nature of sin. If you go back to the Old Testament, they had all of these purification rituals where before you came into the presence of God, you must purify yourself. And you were to purify yourself, for instance, when you interacted with a dead animal or illness or sickness. And why? It's reminding you that we cannot come into the presence of God with the effects of the fall on us. We must be purified. So on the one hand, it's a safety issue, right? In the, in the early cultures, it protected that civilization by saying, hey, if you've interacted uh, with a dead animal, perhaps you should make sure you're not sick before coming back into the community. There was that element. But there was also this ceremonial element that was teaching us something about the nature of sin and the nature of God. And, and it, it actually reminds me, I, I watched this YouTube video, which if you're at all a germaphobe, I don't recommend you watching, but they took it where they were teaching children how to wash their hands properly. So they squirted them with this substance that shows up in black light. And they said, okay, wash your hands now. And then they let them after they wash their hands, go throughout the day, touching everything. And at the end of the day, they turned on the black light and they said, now look at how far all of your germs spread throughout the day. And like I said, if you're a germaphobe at all, don't watch it. You'll be a little bit disturbed. Um, but this is the idea that the Bible is referring to with impurity and sin. In other words, our sin affects far more than we could ever imagine. Often we're tempted to believe this lie that, why does it matter to other people? My sin is my own sin. This is, this is just my own. Why do people have to be uh, concerned about this? My sin only affects me. But the reality of Scripture is that that's a lie. Your sin affects not just you, but everyone in your life. All your relationships, your family, your, your children, your spouse, your friends, your members in your church and at your work, everyone is affected by your sin, by its very nature. It is corrupting and affects other people. You might say, how? How does it do that? Well, I think if you're honest with yourself for a minute, you will start to realize that. Um, let's take... For instance, in a, and I think it's most obvious in any addiction, right? Where the addict says, it's just, it's just my own problem to deal with on my own. It's not affecting anyone else. But if you look at the people in their lives who've been hurt by them, 
by the times that they have failed in their relationships because they've cared more about their, what they're addicted to than the people around them, you'll see that, no, sin has a corrupting effect that doesn't just stop at you. And that's what the Bible is warning us about. We go on to covetousness, and that also ties into everything we talked about before, right? Sexual immorality at its core is this covetousness. It's desiring something that you do not have or should not have, right? And, and what this is talking about is that desire. And, and so when we think about covetousness, it, it is putting the gifts that God gives us above the gift giver. See, this is ultimately the problem with the fall. A lot of times when people view Christianity, and sometimes, unfortunately, some Christians view uh, Christianity is that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy in the sky, sucking the fun out of everything, right, by setting all these rules and regulations. But the truth is that actually God has given us these amazing, amazing gifts that should be for our enjoyment, for our joy. But the problem is that sin has corrupted these good gifts. And we no longer look past through the gift in joy and thanksgiving to the gift giver. We stop at the gift itself. And, and all three of these things have one crucial thing in common. Remember, we said this is tied in to last week. This is the opposite of walking in self-sacrificing love. But how? Well, one of the things as I was reading this, I was reminded of was this description um, by uh, Augustine and a couple of the early church writers who often described sin as being bent. And the idea was you're bent in on yourself. Humans, when they were originally created, are meant to find all their being and their joy and their fulfillment in God. But because of sin, that has been corrupted. And we're just bent. Instead of looking through the gifts that God gives and joy and thanksgiving to the giver of the gifts, we stop at the gift. And so it's like this paper airplane, it, it gets bent. But sometimes even further than that, it's not even the gift anymore that brings us joy and fulfillment and identity. It's what that gift brings to us. In other words, at the end of the day, the problem with sin is that it produces this selfishness, this self-centeredness, where we're no longer looking and worshiping God, but ourselves. And it's just like this plane. We think that just a bending it's just a little bit off. It's not a big deal, right? Except that it just a little bend ruins the original purpose of the plane. It no longer flies. It falls down. And that's how human beings are. We are meant to find our joy and our fulfillment and our creator. But because we've been bent, because we turn in on ourselves and look to ourselves above God, we become selfish. We can no longer walk in love as we are created to do. And that's why the Bible is drawing this out. That's why it's saying that sexual immorality is the opposite of walking in love, right? I know uh, that's often the excuse that is given is like, we love each other. So if we love each other, it has to be good, right? And, and the Bible's answer to this is not, it's not to, to restrict love. It's to say that actually you're, you're not loving each other. You're being selfish. You've deluded yourself and deceived yourself into calling this love, but it's selfishness and evil at its heart. And that's the problem. That's why God puts these restrictions. It's not because he wants to limit love and joy in these great gifts. It's because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that these are actually great, and it's 
when in fact it's not. It's not love. It's selfishness. This continues. What's interesting is this next section of Scripture goes beyond just the way we live our lives, right? Calling out sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. It goes beyond that to the way we speak as well. Look with me at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because immediately after this, the Bible repeats this sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. So how does this middle section fit in? It seems that this chunk of scripture is mostly about those three things and how we live our life. But why does it take a pause and start talking about the way we speak? Look at it closely. Why do you think that is? Well, the truth of this, and, and I might not have noticed this maybe a month ago, but the, but the truth of this is that the way we speak matters because the way we speak is probably the clearest revealing of what is in our hearts. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In other words, whatever, even though we may believe otherwise, how we speak reveals how we actually are in our inner being and in our heart. And actually, the Bible actually has a whole lot to say about how we speak. And if we were to think about this, it begins to make sense. We're called to imitate our Father. And the Bible has a lot to say about how God speaks. He speaks the world into existence. He speaks to his people as he reveals himself. And so the way God speaks matters. Therefore, the way his children speak matters. And so let's look more closely because these things are just like the first things we talked about. They come from the heart. So this first one here, no filthiness. In other words, no filthy talk should be in the Christian community. As a follower of Christ, this should not even be named among us, right? How many of you have heard or even yourself told these told, for instance, like a dirty joke or talk filthy, and you're just like, eh, it's just a joke, relax. Why does it matter so much, right? It's just words. What the Bible tells us is that we're deceiving ourselves. Our words matter because that's what's in our heart. And let's look at the next one besides just filthiness. So if we look here uh, at verse 4, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Let me jump to crude joking for a second. So we talked about filthiness a little bit, right? And it's this idea of bringing in this corruption in our heart, out in our words, whether that may be in, in coarse uh, sexual talk or innuendo. And then we, we sometimes we read this crude joking as the same thing. Uh, and definitely there's an overlap there, just like with impurity and sexual immorality, but it's more than that as well. The idea of crude joking in the scripture actually goes beyond it. It goes beyond it, and it's this idea of putting this desire for humor above other things, whether that's sacrificing your morality or whether that's sacrificing your kindness to another person. Oftentimes, this is actually translated into kind of uh, harsh sarcasm as well. How many of you have either been the butt of a joke or made the joke about someone that was incredibly cruel? and harsh, and mean, 
And in that moment when the person doesn't respond well to it, you say, it's just a joke. Why are you getting so uptight about it? Relax. That's one of the most, if you think about this, this is incredibly cruel and manipulative. In other words, your harsh words are not the problem. Their reaction to them are. And the Bible warns us against this. That this is not how the people of God should speak. Why? Because no matter how much we say we're joking, we're just deceiving ourselves. What comes out of our mouths is actually what is in our hearts. Right? For instance, how many of you have used this excuse? I'll, I'll say a couple examples so that I don't offend just some, but it's, it, I'm not racist, it's just a joke. No, actually, what the Bible says is that's in your heart. You are, in fact, hateful towards other races. That's not sexist, it's just a joke, relax. Well, no, actually, that's not true. I'm, I'm not picking on him, I'm just having fun. I don't actually think that about this person. It's just a joke. Well, no, as Christians, we don't actually get that excuse. And I say this, by the way, as someone who struggles deeply with the way I talk to other people. I know in high school, for instance, I used to joke with my friends and say, sarcasm is just our, 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 our sixth love language, right? It's very Christian culture joke there, but I, I meant it too. But as I grew up and as I was taught by wiser Christians who discipled me, I realized that I was lying to myself. These words I used are not communicating love to another person. Instead, it is using the other person at their expense so I get joy and laughter. It is tearing someone down in order to build up my own amusement. When stripped bare like that, it's, it's pretty evil if you think about it. And many of us have been there as well, I'm sure. And so the Bible warns us against these things. And that's why when I labeled them in here, I said, abandon your evil lifestyle, abandon your evil way of speaking. And you might think evil, that's kind of a harsh term for it. But I chose it intentionally because the fact is we deceive ourselves way too easily that what the actions that we choose and the words that we speak aren't actually as bad as they are. Right? We say, oh, these are just jokes. This is just for amusement. We don't realize that how selfish that is, that we're tearing people down just for a quick laugh. That is evil, if you think about it. But we're so, e we so easily deceived that we're not as bad as we, as we might otherwise be. All right? Let's keep going here then. If we look at these evil ways of speaking, just to, to kind of reiterate that fact so you don't think I'm exaggerating, if you look actually at James chapter 1, it says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. In other words, the way we speak is a reflection of our heart no matter what lies we tell. That's a hard saying. But I'm saying this, and the reason Scripture is saying it is so that we no longer deceive ourselves. And that gets into this next section of Scripture, if you'll read it with me. Look once more at verse 6. Uh, sorry, at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, the Paul here and the Holy Spirit through Paul actually is trying to get us to realize something. That no matter what lies we tell ourselves, no matter how easily we are deceived, that these actions and these words are evil. And that it is these evil actions and words and therefore evil hearts are the reasons God's wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Don't fool yourself any longer. It's not just a joke. It's not just a casual thing to say. It's not just a minor, small imperfection. It is evil. But I, I, I want to take a step back again. What is the opposite of all of this evil talk? And, and, and if you were to hear this list, no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, and you were to ask, what is the opposite of that? What would you say? I don't think most of us would say what the scripture here says, and that is thanksgiving. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Why is thanksgiving the opposite of foolish talk and crude joking and filthiness? Yeah, exactly right. It's going back to what it said in the beginning walk in love. In other words, the way we live, it's not by some self-made effort. We can only censor ourselves for so long before our true heart comes out. We can only hold our actions back so long before our true heart comes out. We can't do this by some self-made effort. What happens is that we are so transformed by the overwhelming love and grace of God that affects everything, every action, every word, every thought, and every desire. In other words, this section of scripture is not to beat you up and tell you, go do better, be more disciplined, live a better life. Instead, it's more of a warning. It's saying that if you are truly a child of God, you will be transformed. And this will no longer be how you live. It's a warning, and the Bible gives these warnings often. Um, and, and sometimes it's a warning to give you encouragement. Look at your life. Have you grown in these areas? Are you more loving person? Are you a more gentle person, a more graceful person? You can't do that on your own. That's the Holy Spirit, so be assured. Because we can rest on this promise that what the Holy Spirit began, he will finish. Isn't that a relief for those of us who have suffered with sin? that we, we continually battle with, we continually struggle with, and sometimes it feels like we're making no headway, but we can rest assured that if the Holy Spirit began His work in you, He will finish it. And, and so this section of Scripture, once again, it's not so much an attempt to beat you up and, and make you discipline yourself and to do better. It's more of saying, examine yourself. On the one hand, if you do see God's growth, rest confident that God is working. On the other hand, though, it's also a warning. If you have not seen the growth of God in your life, if you are sexually immoral, if you are allowing impurity in your life, if you are covetous, 
if your speech is marked by these evil forms of speech, then maybe you are not a child of God. And that's the warning. Don't deceive yourselves. God's grace and power and gospel is overwhelming, and it will transform you if you've truly received it. But don't be deceived. And so uh, uh, that, that leads us to a question, though. If this is all about God's grace in our lives, it's not something that we can do about our own efforts. It, it leads to the next obvious question, right? And that is, okay, so what do I do with this teaching, right? If I can't do it on my own, what do I do? What do I do with this? And, and, and that, once again, goes all the way back to last week. And that is walk in love. And now, what does that practically mean? It means that you have been resting in the love of God for you, and that affects how you live. And, and, and we see that in our thanksgivingness. We are cultivating this awareness of the gospel of God and his grace towards us. And we are, when we're cultivating that in ourselves, when we're meditating on and thinking about and encouraging each other with the gospel, it begins to have a transformative effect. When people are loved deeply, they begin to love in return. And the beauty of the gospel is that we're not just loved and perfectly by like every other human relationship, but we're loved perfectly and eternally and overwhelmingly. And that will have its effect. In other words, what do, should the Christian do who is still struggling with many of these sins? Well, they should turn to God and, and ask for his help to ask him to grow them in their awareness of his love for them, to ask him to grow them in, in being more holy and more loving in the way that they walk. It's to come to him when we do sin and repentance and ask him to forgive us and to help us to not commit the same sin again. In other words, it's like a child who continually goes back to their parent for help. And that's, what, that's why we're called the children of God in Scripture. You're not sent out on your own. I'm reminded, actually, uh, in college, in, in the uh, athlete's weight room, there was this title. And it's a Christian university, which is why this quote was there. But you expect these big motivational quotes up on the wall in an athletic weight room, right? Uh, and it struck me the first time I walked into this weight room. The big quote was, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. <laughs> And it goes on from there, obviously, but that really struck me. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. You can't do it on your own. But you don't have to. God, who began a good work in you, will complete it. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we go to God, and we pray, and we ask him to grow us. We rest in his love and grace towards us, and we act in faith. The Bible says that we have been made holy before God. And while we might not yet fully realize that perfect holiness, we can act in faith and say, you know, in my old way of life, I used to, I used to struggle with this sin. And while I may still struggle, I, I'm not enslaved to it anymore. So I'm going to act in faith and not commit this sin in the moment. Now, we, we will often fail because God is sanctifying us, right? He hasn't fully... Let us realize this full holiness that he will at the end of time. He is making us more holy, just as he's declared us holy in Jesus. But we act in faith. And then when we do screw up, when we do sin and commit evil, we go back in repentance, knowing that we are forgiven already. 
And that's how we grow as Christians together in the body of Christ. And so that's what I want to leave you with today, is that, that we are called to live in love. And we do that by abandoning our evil former way of life and our evil former way of speaking. And when we do that, we prove to be the heirs of God. And so there are two responses to this section of Scripture I want to encourage you with. The first one, if you are a believer, if you've seen the Holy Spirit work in your life and you have grown in these areas, thank God for that. Seriously, spend time thanking God, thinking back to who you were and who you are now, thanking Him this week because you could not have changed on your own. Cultivate that thankfulness in your heart. Do that together. Share it with other people so they can be thankful with you as He has grown you in a miraculous way. But if you are hearing these things and in your thoughts you're going, I actually have not grown in any of these areas. In fact, I am definitely sexually immoral, impure, covetous. I definitely, in my speech, am filthy and, and have coarse joking and foolish talk. And what I want you to invite you today is to really examine your heart. Go before God and ask, have I truly received your gospel? And if you have not, repent. He's, God is not sitting up there waiting to beat you down for your bad things. He is he's described as a, as a father who is waiting and, and hopeful for you to repent and turn to him. And in that very moment, he will receive you and invite him in, invite you into his family. So with that, I want to close in prayer as we will close out our time of worshiping together in song. Uh, Father, I pray that this section of scripture, um, that you would just speak to us, that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word fully, that it might be encouragement for your children, that it might be a rebuke for those of us who who have not been diligent with the way we speak and the way we act. And that if anyone here who is deceiving themselves and, and who thinks they are your child but have never actually received the gospel, that you would make them aware of that, that you would convict them of their sins, that you would give them temporary sorrow over their evil they have committed so that they might experience the true joy of being your son. In Jesus' name, amen.